0: It's quite easy to get distracted and uh, find our attention diverted from the main thing that we're here for, um, which ultimately is to make disciples and mature disciples. That's what we do. We want to make disciples and see people come to the knowledge of Christ, and then we want to mature those disciples toward likeness. That's what we're here for. And uh, so that's a great song to focus our attention on that. Remind us of... Of that main purpose. You can open up to Exodus 15. That's where we'll be this morning. Exodus 15. At our house recently, we have been watching an unusual amount of soccer um, past week or two. And the reason for that is, if you're unaware, there's a rather big tournament going on in Europe right now where all the top European teams play against each other. And so uh, we have been tuning in and watching some of the best players in the world play soccer recently. And as we've been watching this, there have been uh, admittedly, I've been more interested in it than um, Bethany has. But there have been several times during this uh, a couple times where I some play has happened. Some goal has been scored and I have pulled up the replay of that goal and I have very excitedly said to her, watch this. (laughs) And she very graciously will stop what she's doing and look and watch the goal and I will be like, I want you to see this, this is unbelievable, look at what's happening here. Now, I want you to think for a second about what's going on when I do that because I know that you do something similar, although probably not with soccer. And with with goals that have been scored there. I have, in that moment, I have seen something with my eyes that I consider beautiful, that I consider praiseworthy, and my heart found joy in that, happiness, delight in what I witnessed. And so when I witnessed that, when I saw it and my heart rejoiced in it, the natural end result of my rejoicing was not to keep it to myself. The end result of my rejoicing was to seek others out, to find others who happened to be my family because they were there, and I said, watch this. I want them to rejoice in what I'm rejoicing in. I want them to experience the same awe and the same satisfaction that I have experienced. Now, I have no doubt that you do something like this every single day of your life because you were designed to work this way. You do it in other areas, with a piece of music, with a book, a poem, a beautiful sunset, a speech, a piece of dark chocolate, a car, a newborn baby, a host of other things. You are made to see something beautiful and delightful to your soul, to find exultation and rejoicing in that, and then to engage others and have them seek to find that delight as well. And the reason for that is because the delight is not complete until it has been shared. C.S. Lewis wrote about this and described what happens when we find delight in something and ultimately seek to praise it to someone else. Here's what he said. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Here's what he means. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than if we're a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. This is taken from an article by Lewis called A Word About Praising. And I want you to understand that what we're really talking about so far this morning is the worship of God. mean, this is what you and I were made to do. We are made to worship God and our entire lives function this way. We find delight in something. We respond to beauty and glory with delight. But that enjoyment and that exaltation and that honoring of whatever it is we find delight in is not completed until it has been praised and honored before others. Praising and honor it before others is the consummation. It's the end result of the delight. It's doing that publicly, whether it's a small group or a large group. We want others to experience the same sense of delight. And in the Bible... God has taken our darkened hearts, and he has shown the glory of the light of the gospel into our darkened hearts, and now our hearts have been opened, our eyes have been opened to see the glory of Christ, and the instinctive response of a heart like that, of a new heart, of a redeemed heart, is to praise God for his deliverance. It's to seek to find others to engage with that delight. It's to spread that delight to other people, and that's what we call worship. That's what worship is. A.W. Tozer put it like this. Something wonderful and miraculous and life-changing takes place within the human soul when Jesus Christ is invited in to take his rightful place. That is exactly what God anticipated when he wrought the plan of salvation. He intended, I love this, to make worshipers out of rebels. He intended to restore to men and women the place of worship, which, which our first parents knew when they were created. And it's this response of worship that we find in Exodus 15. There's a reason the narrative is broken up here with this song that is inserted right here after Israel has been fully delivered from, from Egypt and their enemies have been crushed. They've been rescued from slavery, their enemies have been defeated, and they are so delighted in God that they turn that delight into praise publicly, and they want others and everyone to rejoice in what has happened to them and what they've experienced and what God has done. And we learn a lot from their worship, and their worship here tells us that God's character should be the result or should be the end game of our worship of him and his work of salvation. And so this morning, as we get into this passage, we're going to see two essentials for the praise and worship of the redeemed. Two essentials for the praise and worship of the redeemed. The first one of these is found in the bookends of this song. The songs in the middle Basically, the the heart of the song from verses 4 to 18, but the bookends of this, the beginning, verses 1 to 3 and 19 to 21, tell us to maintain the focus of praise. So in verse 1, we find at the beginning that Moses and all the people of Israel are singing this song. It says in verse 1, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, and then it recounts the song. And then if you look in verses 19 to 21, you find sort of a bookend of this, of Miriam leading the women specifically to play the tambourine and dance and take delight and sing this song. Look at verses 19 to 21. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea, right? Recounting the events of what's happened. Then, verse 20, Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, taught them essentially, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, this mentions the first line or so of the song, the same words basically as verse 1, the beginning of the song. And so I think what this is indicating to us is not that Miriam just taught them these lines, but this is the, like the title of the song. And so it's saying that she taught them the entire song and led all of them in continuing to sing this song. Now, you'll notice at the beginning, back in verse one, look at how it begins I will sing to the Lord. Or in verse 21, it says, sing to the Lord. I think you could also say both of these like this. I must sing to the Lord. I mean, that's the, the implication of what's, what they're saying here. Or let me sing to the Lord. There's a compulsion that is happening here in the people. And they're saying at the beginning of their song, we have to do this. Like it's, it's an appropriate and a right and an instinctive response for us to sing to God. There's a need for those who've been redeemed, to express worship to God for what he has done in bringing salvation. And at times, that need is almost overwhelming. It is consuming. You have to respond in in awe and delight and worship of him for what he has done. Now this song interestingly in scripture this song of praise to God for his deliverance is the first of its kind in the Bible. I mean there are other poems in scripture, and there's a poem very early when Adam meets Eve for the first time, that is the first poetry in human history. So there's lots of poems early in the book of Genesis, but this is the first real full song that is sung out of praise to God for his deliverance. And this, as the first one, this song, if you look through the rest of Scripture, this song is picked up. The themes of this song are picked up throughout the rest of the Bible, and people mimic this when they have experienced God's deliverance in their own lives. This becomes sort of a paradigm for the praise of God for his deliverance throughout the rest of Scripture. People often pick up this language and, and praise God for his work. And a couple of examples, you don't have to turn there, but in Judges chapter 5, Deborah, who's one of the judges, sings a song of praise to God after God delivers her and delivers Israel out of the hands of their enemy. First uh, Samuel chapter 2, the song of Hannah, picks up some of the th- same themes as this song here. 2 Samuel 22, the the whole book of Samuel, both would have been one book together, 1 and 2 Samuel, but it's bookended by songs, Hannah's song at the beginning and David's song at the end in 2 Samuel 22, and both of those songs have themes that are very similar to this song of Moses here. Of course, when you get to the New Testament, you find Mary's song of praise over the birth of Christ, the coming birth of Christ in Luke 1. Over the promise of his birth, and the themes of that song can certainly be traced to Hannah's song and then ultimately back to this song of praise here. And then finally, amazingly enough, you get to the book of Revelation and what do you find in heaven? And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, And so this becomes the paradigm, and this song and another one that Moses wrote later on become songs that are actually sung to God and to Christ in praise of him in heaven. And so keep in mind, as you study this, as we work through this this morning, this is a model for how we are to cultivate worship in our own lives and in our church. And the whole point of this is that we respond to God's grace and His salvation with praise and worship of Him. And our first essential, you can see it uh, back there, is to maintain our focus on Him. It has to be the same focus in all of our praise, has to be consistent. I mean, look how this begins. I will sing to the Lord. The focus is there. It is worship that is directed to him. The first, in the first three verses of this, you have God's name that he gave to Moses in Exodus 3 mentioned over and over again. Verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Over and over again, His name is mentioned. He is the focus and the focal point here. And verses 1-3 to are essentially a call to worship. Pleading with the people and telling them, you need to worship God with us. So what this tells us is our worship is not a vague Mystical feeling. It certainly involves feeling and delight and joy, absolutely. But ultimately, it is not a vague mystical feeling. It's not just feeling good. It's not just an internal sense of peace and delight and satisfaction that comes from emptying your mind out. Worship is ruthlessly focused on the Lord, on the God who has brought salvation. On the creator and the redeemer look again at verse 2 the Lord is my strength and my song it's an interesting thing to pair both of these together our strength and our song and so I think what's happening here is the attention is so focused on God that we recognize that he has ability where we lack ability and we'll talk more about that later but it's to say, he is, I'm in desperate need of him. I respond to him in worship because I know I need him. And then, he is my song, I delight in him. He alone brings true joy and satisfaction. And so, because of that, he is worthy of praise. And it's interesting here, especially in verse 2, there's a, there's a wonderful interplay between personal pronouns, the word my, which would seem to be directing attention toward self, But there's an interplay between my, the personal pronouns here, and then the fact that God is the ultimate one who we draw attention to. True worship of God recognizes the role God has played in our lives, but ultimately diverts that attention back to him. In other words, in verse 2, it's not about me. The focus is not on my goodness or my work, anything good that has happened to me, anything I'm experiencing that is delightful is because of Him. And we sing out of our personal experience, out of the deliverance that we have felt and we have experienced, because He is the one that has brought it about. Notice in verse 2 as well, it says, this is my God, I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. This is the same God they're connecting back to the same God who has been working in all of the history of Israel. Remember God's words to Moses in Exodus 3, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. To truly worship God puts us in a long line of worshipers who have experienced God's work, his salvation, and his deliverance. Now, notice verse 3 again. I read this earlier, but notice again the end of this call to worship. This is who we're singing to, the God who defeats our enemies, who is a man of war, and then he defines his name. The Lord is his name. This is the one that we are singing, singing to and the one whom we are worshiping. And so, with this sort of ruthless focus on Yahweh God, attention drawn to him, let's not forget what we're doing every Sunday when we come in here. When we, cut, when we gather together to worship as a church body on Sunday, let's not forget what we're doing. We are here for God. That's why we're here. It's for him. It's for the attention to be focused on him and not anyone else. Over the years, as I've been involved in pastoral ministry, I have grown to love weddings um, to, a, to a great degree. I just delight in them. I love participating in weddings uh, at this point in my life. And I, there's a moment in every wedding where I just about lose it. Um, and sometimes I do lose it and start tearing up and crying. And it's, it's my favorite part of every wedding ceremony, and it's the part where If it's dramatic and they open the back doors and the bride comes in, fine. If not, fine too. But it's that moment where the bride comes down the aisle. And I love standing up front. And this is just one of the privileges of getting to do a wedding. You get to stand up front and you get to watch her come down the aisle and then you get to watch him. And I love to see her focused on him and him focused on her. He is not looking at his shoes. He is not looking at the picture on the wall. He is not checking his cell phone. He is not distracted. Both of them have a laser focus on each other in that moment. And I love it. It's so great and wonderful. That moment of singular focus is exactly what we're talking about when we come to worship the Lord. It's to maintain our attention on Him. That is an essential part of the worship of the redeemed. It's all about God. And it's returning our praise to Him for all that He has done and for who He is. And that brings us to the next part of this. The second essential, we maintain the focus of praise, which is on Him. And the second part of this is we recount the reasons for praise. Why is He worthy of our worship? Specifically, What do we praise him for? And as we maintain the proper focus on him and who he is, now we'll begin to parse out the specific reasons for why we praise him. His glorious name is to be exalted and lifted up because of the excellencies of his character, the manifold excellencies of his character. They are many and we recount them, and we draw our attention to these specific character qualities that are expressed in his works and in his deliverance. And those character qualities are recounted in verses 4 through 18. And I'm going to split this up into three different parts. So you're not really supposed to have two levels in your outline when you preach, but we're going to do it this morning. So I trust that you can follow with me and it won't be too overwhelming for you this morning. So Two essentials for the praise and worship of the redeemed, to maintain focus, and then let's recount the reasons for our praise of God. The first one of these reasons is we praise Him because of His power. Now god's power is specifically addressed in this passage by the people singing about His authority over the Egyptians, the enemies of Israel. I mean you've been with us in the book of Exodus we 've seen that God has triumphed over. The powers of darkness over the Egyptians, over the gods of Egypt, and the way God has done all of this and brought Israel out of Egypt and brought the Egyptians to ruin puts God's power on display. Look at verses 5 through 10 here. I'm sorry, 4 through 10. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. We notice the attention over and over again to God's power displayed in his defeat of the enemy. Verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Interestingly enough, here's the, the mentality of the Egyptians as they went into the sea after the Israelites. They were not scared in many ways, although it would be easy to read that into their pursuit of, of Israel. They went in arrogantly. They went in confident in their own ability. And this certainly gives us a pattern that is displayed in Scripture where God puts down the proud and exalts the humble. Look at verses 9 and 10. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. And with this sort of arrogance from the Egyptian army put on display, God does this in verse 10, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Now, this was one of the, if not the greatest human armies on earth at that time. And God dispatched of them like they were toy plastic soldiers. He threw them into the sea and covered them with water. Their arrogance and their hubris over this was was exposed for what it was. Nothing. These verses here describe a very specific situation, right? It describes God's defeat of the Egyptians. But what they point us to is the universal capacity of God to put his power on display to do whatever he desires to do. And when we see a glimpse of God's power put on display, it should put us on our faces before him in worship. There's no one who has the authority and the power that God does. Now, what do we we mean when we say God is powerful? I mean, it's easy to use that word. We see it in here in verse 6 that he's glorious in power. But what are we actually talking about when we say God is all-powerful? He is omnipotent. Here's one definition of this. The power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases, whatsoever his infinite wisdom may direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will may resolve. As holiness is the beauty of all God's attributes, so power is that which gives life and action to all the perfections of the divine nature. God's power is his ability. He can. It's his ability to do whatever he wants to do according to his holy will. Anything. He's capable of any of it. He can do whatever he wants to. He can crush an army like this. He can p- p- put the waters up and hold them and create dry land out of the middle and have his people walk. Through. He can do whatever he wants to do when it comes to anything. And to get a proper grasp of this, remember the flip side of this is we as human beings are limited. We don't have that ability. We don't have that capacity. You and I very quickly bump into the ceiling of what we are capable of doing. We are quite limited limited. We cannot accomplish very much if you stop and think about it. I know it seems like it sometimes, but you and I simply do not have the power to even keep ourselves alive for one moment on our own. We don't have the authority and the ability to accomplish anything. You and I cannot change an unsaved person's heart at all. You can't do it. I can't do it either. You cannot sanctify another person. I wish someone could sanctify me quicker and better. You probably wish that about other people as well. But you don't have the power. You can't do it. No matter what you say, no matter what words you use or I use, you cannot sanctify another person. You don't have that ability. You can't change circumstances. You cannot flip it around. You can't adjust it. You can't make the world function the way you want to, and neither can I. You can't maintain your income on your own. You can't provide for your needs on your own. We are weak. We are limited. We don't have much at all that we can do. But God does. He does. And that is put on display all throughout Scripture. And when it comes to the Gospel specifically, look at this, where human wisdom utterly fails to deal with human need, God himself has taken action. This is his power. He has taken action. We are impotent when it comes to dealing with our sin and being reconciled to God. But where we are impotent, God is powerful. The gospel is not simply good advice, nor is it good news about God's power. The gospel is God's power to those who believe. The gospel is how the right hand of God actually works to make people into new creatures and gives them a new heart and sanctifies us and changes us from the inside out. It's his power, Romans 1.16. Why are you and I sitting here this morning as one who has been redeemed from slavery to sin, and why are you and I at peace with God, the God of the universe? Why do we have forgiveness this morning? It's not because I'm able, or you're able, or you're strong enough, or I'm strong enough, or smart enough, or savvy enough, or wise enough, or mighty enough. None of that has anything to do with it. You and I are here this morning. You're sitting here this morning, amazingly enough because God touched your heart of stone. there's no other reason because he touched my heart of stone and changed it to heart of flesh because he has the power to do that. He has the power to deliver from darkness. You and I are here this morning because God has the ability and the authority to overthrow the powers of darkness, to push them to the side, to utterly defeat them. And that's what he's done by his mighty right hand. He has defeated our greatest enemy, who is death, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, man, we praise him for his power, his ability. We trust and we rest in that ability. Second reason we praise him. We recount the reasons of praise. We praise him for his power, then we praise him for his uniqueness. No one like him. Throughout Exodus, we've seen this, right? This has been one of the the major themes of the book of Exodus. There are gods in Egypt, Pharaoh claims to be a god, and the whole book has put on display that there is no one like God. No, No gods, no rulers, no one is like him. He alone is holy, he is unique, He is one of a kind in the universe. And because he is one of a kind, he should be praised for that. Look at verses 11 and 12. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. Just a reminder, that word swallowed in verse 12 is the same word that was used when Moses' staff swallowed the serpent all the way back earlier in the book of Exodus, indicating to us the authority and the power that God has over the gods of Egypt and over Pharaoh. And that's exactly what ultimately ended up happening here to the entire army, is God's power swallowed them up into the sea and into the earth. And so his exclusivity means no one else can act in the ways that he does. There was a a news story this past week that the the third largest diamond, gem-quality diamond, that has ever been found was found in Botswana um, this past, past couple weeks. Um, You can go find a picture of it because you're like, well, what does that look like? Well, it's 1,098 carats, slightly bigger than the ring I gave Bethany when we got engaged. A little bit bigger, slightly. So you can go find a picture of this online. And I saw some of you nodding your heads because you've heard about this news story. And the reason you've heard about it is because when something that unique and unparalleled comes to our attention. We are fascinated by it. I have no doubt that some of you will go and Google Botswana diamond you know, and find it and see a picture of it. It's, it is fascinating. We're amazed by it. You see someone holding that thing up, and it's, it's an awe-inspiring event. I mean, come on, how much more? The only true God, the creator God of the universe who has this sort of power, who is awesome in deeds, who is unique, who acts with glory, beauty, righteousness, mercy, all at the same time, how much more is he worthy of our awe and of our praise? His wonders should always bring us to worship him, as it says here. Lastly, why do we praise him? Let's recount the reasons. His power, his uniqueness, and then his love. Verses 13 to 18. We've said all along in the book of Exodus that God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt did not end with just getting them out. That wasn't the reason and the purpose for this. That was a means to an end. What was the end? The end was For God to set his affection on them and to make them into his people as a nation and to bring them into the promised land. But even going into the promised land wasn't the end game. The end was for them to be in the promised land and then for him to come and dwell among them in a specific place. He desired to bring them into his presence and for them to be his people for them to reflect his glory out to the nations in him to dwell with them in love. And that love ought to bring a sense of worship and awe from his people. Look at verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You, this is projecting forward, have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And we'll talk about that idea of the holy abode more in a few minutes here. But when it says here, his steadfast love, that is a word in Hebrew that means his covenant faithfulness. And so the idea is that God initiates and makes a covenant with his people, with someone, with Abraham with Israel, and then ultimately with us in the new covenant. And he sets his affection and love and displays them through this covenant, and then he is faithful to keep that covenant. It's hesed. It's his covenant faithfulness and loyalty. And when he makes a covenant promise, it is based on his character, and he always keeps that promise. And his covenant promise to Israel was to bring them into the promised land and to do them good by dwelling among them. Now, this status as his beloved and holy people set apart for his honor and his glory, this makes them different from others. And you can see some of the responses of the other nations as Israel passes through. And this, again, is looking to the future here of what will happen. Look at verses 14 through 16. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling, seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Why? Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Now all of that with the other nations and their response to this, all of that is secondary. Secondary. And it's secondary to what happens in verses 17 and 18. Look there. You, this is the end goal, will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Now, these verses speak to some massive biblical themes, and they help us to see how Israel's exodus from Egypt is a part of a much bigger purpose of God. There are really three major themes that are biblical themes in these verses. First of all, and and let me say before I get to those three, these themes show us what God's love looks like. Verse 13 described God's covenant faithfulness and his steadfast love to his people, and these three themes show us what that looks like. First theme, God creates a people for himself by his grace. That's what he's done here. It's his people that he is working with and that he has created by his grace. The second major theme is that God, when he creates a people by his grace, brings them into his presence Remember we talked last week about the biblical theme of God's presence, his relational presence among his people. We lost it in Eden, and God is working to restore that relationship. And Israel is a part of that here. And so he creates a people by his grace, and his goal for that is to bring them into his presence and dwell with them. And as they dwell with them, they will be under his rule and reign. That's the three big themes here. And one author has described the entire theme of the Bible this way. It's telling the story of God's people dwelling in God's place under God's rule. We had that in Eden. We lost it. The attempt to restore it here with Israel in the Old Testament, to have God's people dwelling in God's place under God's rule and obeying his word. And Israel fails in that. And then the Lord Jesus Christ comes we have the church now, God's people dwelling in God's place under his rule, but ultimately that will be culminated one day on the new earth when we're with him as his people, in his presence, under his rule, and things will be finally and fully set right. And that's exactly what he's doing now. is He's working this plan to create a people for himself, to bring them into his presence, By the Holy Spirit in the church and then ultimately to lead us toward the promised land, if you will, where we will be under his rule in his place. He's extending his work now by the proclamation of his word and that will find its fulfillment at the end of time. And he will be praised for that mighty work. We praise him for his love, which is expressed to us through these themes here. We praise him because we have been redeemed by his glorious grace. And so, you see things that are worthy of praise all the time in your life. And you call others to enjoy those things with you. And in some sense, that's an act of worship, not heretical worship where you're giving your full affection and devotion to some earthly thing but it mirrors what we're ultimately made and designed to do. And that the, the full reality of that is found as we worship the Lord and as we honor him and as we praise him because we delight in the work that he does and the salvation he brings on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, we're, we're thankful for the, the text this morning and for the instruction we've received about the worship of you. We pray, Lord, that you would soften our hearts toward you this morning. We would be filled with delight and awe in what you have done and then help us to respond as those who have been bought back from sin who return our thankfulness to you in praise and delight and worship. And I pray that that would alter the way we think, the way we feel, the way we move about our day, and we would be more and more made into new people by our worship of you that we would be changed and that you would be honored and praised even further as we are your people dwelling in your presence under your rule and reign. Thank you for all you've done in Christ's name. Amen.